0: Welcome to, stories. <coughs> Welcome to science stories.
1: Welcome to science stories. Welcome to science
0: stories. Welcome to science
1: stories. Welcome to science stories.
0: Welcome everybody to another episode of Science Stories. Today my guest is Dr. Stuart Cantrill, and he is the founding chief editor of Nature Chemistry but now he moved up to be the editorial director of Nature Journals, Physics and Chemistry. So today we're going to have a look into the black box. We're going to look at what's going on behind all the scientific peer reviewed publications and just a little bit more background on Dr. Cantrill. Prior to that, he was a Associate Editor and then Senior Editor of Nature Nanotechnology. And before that, he did a PhD at UCLA and a postdoctoral stay at Caltech, working with, with chemistry and really interesting, a little bit complicated stuff, but super interesting stuff. Dr. Cancel, how, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on today, Mateo. It's, uh, it's going to be a pleasure to talk to you this evening.
0: Yes, I'm really interested and... Lots of my scientist friends are really interested in what you have to say because you kind of have the key to the precious door that we all want to walk through, right? Nature is can you can you help me explain what Nature means for the scientific community?
1: Um sure. Nature is a journal published by Springer Nature. Nature itself publishes across all areas of science. It's viewed by some as a prestigious place to publish your work. It's certainly hard to get your work published there. They're very selective in what they do publish. Um, It's certainly not the only journal out there. There are plenty of other journals. Um, You often hear people refer to uh, Nature, Science and Cell. So Science and Cell are two of the premier journals. I joined what was Nature Publishing Group back at the start of 2006. And I started as an associate editor on Nature nanotechnology. So the job of an associate editor is to evaluate manuscripts that are submitted to the journal, decide if they pass the bar of interest, do we think it's going to be of broad interest to the community that we hope reads that journal. And then if we think they are, then we send them out to peer review, we send them to Three or more other experts in the field and ask them their opinion on whether they think the science is technically sound. We don't actually ask them to tell us whether the science is interesting. We sort of decide that, but it certainly doesn't stop the referees telling us that. They often give us their opinion on whether they think it's novel or important or significant. But those words are very subjective and they mean different things to different people. So I did that for a little while, for a couple of years. <clears throat> And then I moved on to be the the founding editor of Nature Chemistry. So that's Nature Nanotechnology Nature nature Chemistry. And there are now something like 35 different Nature X titles so Nature Physics, Nature Human Behaviour, Nature Energy. It covers the whole span of science. And the reason being is nature itself is a relatively small journal. It can't publish all the papers it gets in nanotechnology or chemistry. So all of these spin-out nature journals have been launched over the last 20 or more years, actually, to give homes to some of the research that didn't end up being published in nature. But also, it's not just that. There are direct submissions to these other nature journals too. And, And nature chemistry, I was the chief editor, so I was responsible for recruiting the editorial team and then guiding the team in terms of what I thought was appropriate for the journal. But being an editor at NH Journal, it's not just about handling manuscripts and managing the peer review process. We also commission articles for what we call the front half of the journal, which is the more sort of journalistic side. So we'll ask people to write comment pieces for us, or review articles, sort of surveying the literature, and other sort of more journalistic type pieces. So it's it's a really inter- interesting job because you're exposed to a wide range of science. So at Nature Chemistry, it was, I was exposed to lots of different types of chemistry. And because in the community, at least, some people do perceive the nature journals to be quite good and publish really good work, lots of people really do want to try and get their best work in there. So we would see a lot of really great sort of cutting edge frontier work, people pushing the boundaries forwards.
0: I think you're being a little bit humble when you say some people consider it a great or a good journal. If I had to translate it to football teams, which is how I think of everything, I would say that being the editor of Nature, of a Nature journal, whichever it is, is like being the manager of Barcelona or or the Manchester United, with no no offense to Aston Villa, because I I know you're from Birmingham, I don't know if you cheer for Aston Villa or who, but it's that big, it's it's huge, it's a I mean, many scientists' careers are focused on trying to get a publication in Nature. Am I wrong?
1: You are absolutely not wrong. And actually, actually I'm a Manchester United fan. Oh, nice. So um, <laughs> so uh, you, uh, you picked a good football team there. But that's fine. It's absolutely fine. It's just that being the chief editor of Nature Chemistry, I want the journal to be very good. I want people to find it interesting. I want people to read it. But I will let other people make their own minds up about how good it is. And I, I would not go around the world shouting about, oh, nature chemistry is great. It's the best chemistry journal out there. It's not for me to say. Um, And there's no metric by which you can actually really judge that. I mean, let's not get into impact factors. They are mostly nonsense. Um, That's a metric by which journals are measured based on number of citations per paper over a particular period. It's just up to others to decide if it's a good journal or not. And and as with any journal, within the particular – within the journal – we will publish, I'm sure some papers that people think, "Wow, that's really good, and Nature chemistry will also publish some papers that people will go, eh, yeah, that's okay, or that's not great it's I'm sitting here with a glass of red wine. <laughs> it's very subjective. Some people like red wine, some people like white wine, some people prefer beer it's there's no There's no particular measure of how good a paper is. You can't feed a paper into a machine and it spit you out a number, or if even if you could, it wouldn't really be meaningful. So different areas of science, different papers within different areas of science have a different significance to different people. People should realize that just because a paper is published in a nature journal, hopefully it means it's a good paper, but it doesn't guarantee it's a great paper, um, yeah, just like I, any
0: journal. Yeah, 100% agree. I, I, I didn't mean to impose that, but I'm just trying to convey the feeling of of how big it is, at least for some people, or the subjectiveness of how big it is. So if you want, let's talk about something a little bit more objective. For example... How many articles does a nature journal receive per day?
1: When I was at Nature Chemistry, it would receive somewhere between 150 and 200 a month. How do you um, do with
0: such big numbers?
1: The way it used to work when I was the chief editor is I would look at the title and the abstract of every single paper. And based on the title and the abstract, I would assign it to one of the editors on the team. The nature journals are staffed by full-time professional editors and they would read and evaluate the paper and they would make the decision about whether it would initially go out to peer review or not. And then if it did go out to peer review, they would select the reviewers, they would gather in the referee reports, and then after discussion amongst the team would make a decision on whether to proceed with the paper and ultimately publish it or whether to reject the paper.
0: I don't want to overstep a line, and if I am, please let me know. But for example, sure. is there anything that if an article says this, it won't get published in Nature? Any characteristic of an article that this is not for Nature, you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: I think I, think I know what you're saying. Every paper is given sort of a, a fair hearing and every paper is read. But you'd occasionally hear of papers where someone's claiming Einstein was wrong or the structure of DNA is not what people think the structure of DNA is. Sort of the really out there crazy ideas really trying to say something is really wrong in how the foundations of science have been built so and we rarely got those in chemistry we we did occasionally get submissions that were actually harking back to your one of your other podcasts we did get some that were poetry but we we don't publish chemistry poetry at least not in nature chemistry so no there's not there's not really sort of something that sets off alarm bells ringing you go oh Um, they've mentioned that we're not going to publish that well for example claiming that a new element has been discovered and maybe if it's a a solo researcher working in a shed in their garden, that probably wouldn't go very far because you're not going to be discovering new elements in a shed in your garden. So if there was something as outlandish as that, then yes, we could we could probably very safely reject that and be pretty sure we were correct in that decision.
0: And in the country, if there is an article that is likely going to be picked up by the general press, like for example, the New York Times, that would increase mm-hmm. its possibilities of being published in a, in a journal
1: like, like Nature. Is that, is that true? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I remember at my time in nature chemistry, you, you, you'd get papers where... Because what we were looking for was really chemistry that was really pushing the boundaries of chemistry forwards, new chemistry. But occasionally you'd get manuscripts that might be analysing the chemical makeup of a particular famous artwork or maybe trying to solve a case of a mysterious um, murder or something. And they'd be digging into the, the analytical chemistry of that. And you could guarantee that a journal that published that would probably get a lot of coverage. So fundamental chemistry tends not to get a lot of press coverage. Physics has large machines that span countries that you fire electrons around. Biology has life, genetics, the human genome. What does chemistry have? Petrol, washing powder, It's hard to explain to the general public what the importance of chemistry actually is, because when you say chemicals, people think bad things, they think pollution. Whereas, I mean, chemistry fundamentally underpins the pharmaceutical industry for the most part, unless we're talking about biologics. Most of the drugs that people take, I mean, yes, they're medicine, and that's what the public knows them as, it's medicine, but fundamentally a lot of that's come about because a chemist has understood how to make this molecule and a chemist has developed a route to make this molecule and then it's been scaled up by process engineers or chemical engineers and then it's it's rolled out but if you didn't have the chemistry at the very beginning of the process so at least on nature chemistry we didn't pay any attention to what we thought any potential press outcome would be it was really about is this cool chemistry? Is this chemistry going to move the needle and push things forward? Is it going to enable other chemists to do new things or understand things much better than they used to? And actually trying to predict whether a, especially a chemistry paper would have any impact in the New York Times or in the Guardian. It was a false game. You you never really knew. In fact, the ones that, the ones that probably do make it more than most is the papers we published where there was some kind of origin of life angle mm-hmm. because newspapers, of course, are interested in where where did life come from, where did it originate. But that doesn't mean every origin of life paper gets a pass and goes through the peer review process. And, And that's important to say is, I mean, no matter what the initial editor decision is, every paper does go through the peer review process. Although I should say, editors are humans and peer reviewers are humans too. And guess what? Humans make mistakes. So just because a manuscript has been seen by, I, I like to refer to them as three random internet strangers, um, three peer reviewers. It doesn't mean it's a brilliant paper and it doesn't even mean it's right. And sometimes papers that are wrong do get published. And then if that happens, we go through the process of trying to correct them or retract them or we withdraw them from the literature. So I should just say peer review is also not perfect, but it's probably one of the best systems we have for evaluating manuscripts.
0: So there is... Currently, like two ways of publishing, and it's either open access or subscription-based models. Do, yep. do you mind briefly explaining what what those mean to the audience, and and what do you think of them? If there is there one that you prefer over the other one?
1: Absolutely. So, for many years, and the way publishing first really started was through the subscription model, and this is where papers are published by journals, and the business model works. Such that the reader pays. So you might not pay directly if you're a student at a university or an academic at a university. What would happen is the library at your institute would subscribe, hence subscription. And then because you have that subscription at your institute or at your company, all of the people there would be able to read. And it wouldn't cost the author anything, it would be free to the author to publish. And in that way, you're actually spreading all of the costs associated with the publishing process across all of the readers. But of course, that does mean that if your institute doesn't subscribe or if you can't afford to personally subscribe, then that research is behind a paywall and you wouldn't be able to read it. What has emerged over the last 20, 25 years is something called open access. This sort of flips the model on its head. The author submits their paper, it gets evaluated through the peer review process, as, as it always did. But then the author or the author's institute pays a fee to publish the paper, but then the paper is open for all to read. And it's not just that it's free to read. It's, there are different open access licenses, which means that there's different levels of reuse of the data within the paper. So open access isn't just about the work being free to read. It's also about the licenses for reuse. And fundamentally, that means more people can access the paper and more people can read it and more people can reuse it. And the way the whole scientific endeavor is built is, is this is what we do. We Was it Newton who said we stand on the shoulder of giants? We we build on the work that others have done before us. It's very rare you have something come up, someone come up with something that's completely and utterly new. So if something is open and the the data associated with it is open and everyone can have access to that and everyone can reuse it, then you would think that would accelerate how we do science. The problem there, however, is the costs fall to the author. Instead of spreading the cost of publishing across all of the readers, and there could be thousands, tens of thousands of readers, here the cost of publishing that one paper falls on that one particular author or their institute so ultimately in a sense the money is the same the money is either going into library budgets to pay for subscription or the money is going through institutes and through authors to pay for the open access fees it's two different it is two different business models but a lot of people do see the moral case for open access as well making papers open for everyone to read and everyone has access but it does shift currently who is actually paying for the publishing process and just one more thing the problem you have as well is in terms of the reader paying the subscription model because it breaks it down to smaller bits it's it's not such a big chunk and if you have journals that have a really large rejection rate so like nature journals for example if you reject 90 percent of the papers that are ever submitted to you and you only publish 10%, then it's only 10% of your authors who are paying for all of that publishing work to be done um, because the people who get rejected are not paying for that. Um, And so journals that have really high reject rates, typically the, the price for an open access paper is greater. So you could say, well, why don't we just have journals that aren't quite as selective, and accept more papers, and send them and drive the cost any. But again, it's kind of human nature. <laughs> There's that word nature again. People want to be part of clubs that are exclusive. <laughs> um, you always want to be part of the club that you're not necessarily invited to, or the one that's really difficult to get in. And not all researchers, but some researchers really value that exclusive exclusivity, and being one of only 150 papers published a year in nature chemistry, is probably maybe more important to some than being one of 3,000 papers a year published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. So it's, there's all these different factors that come into play.
0: Dr. country I, I don't mean to challenge you at all, but when you speak about open access, you speak in a way that it sounds so reasonable. But I have to point out that there is sort of a contradiction in the fact that the author of the article is paying to publish, right? And therefore, you yeah. do all the work and you have to pay yeah. to publish. My question is, yeah. and I don't, I don't think there's an answer, but is there a third way, an alternative to to one of these two options? And I'm sure nature is already thinking about an alternative, right?
1: From a bring a nature perspective, editors need to be paid their salary. We, we have a building that people 100%. need to sit in. We have yeah, an yeah. IT infrastructure. So we we need to cover our costs. And then then there's maybe a debate about how much profit should a company make, and i don't really want to get into a debate of what profits should or should not be, but we very strongly encourage preprinting go articles as well, so preprint servers and we, we believe that manuscripts should be disseminated as quickly as possible by being put up on a preprint server and I mean the fact of the matter is is we we don't actually. We, we don't force people to submit to us. No journal forces people to submit to them. And you could just publish all of your papers on a preprint server or on your own blog or on your own website. Again, it comes back to that peer review situation as well. It, peer review isn't perfect, but it does give it some stamp of legitimacy, some stamp of it probably being correct if it's been peer reviewed. And you also get the benefit through being published in a journal, whether it's a nature journal or some other journal, of their sort of, they're kind of like a dissemination machine. People know to go and look in certain places to find work. So absolutely, you could publish all of your own papers on your own blog, but how many people are going to come and read them? Are you going to remember to maintain your blog? Are you going to remember to pay your hosting fee? In 20 years' time, will that hosting company still be around? Will you need to shift them to another blog? to another server so no one's stopping yeah. you from doing that but with commercial publishers or even society publishers they need to be able to pay their employees and be able to have the infrastructure in place to process manuscripts put them up on websites copy edit them help them be disseminated to the public have website or public to, to other scientists have websites that are stable that you know are going to be there in 60 years time 100 years time you, if you want to go find the Watson and Crick paper on the structure of DNA, you can go find it. If you want to go look at the paper on the discovery of the electron, you can go find it. So is scientific publishing perfect? I'm sure it's not. Are there things that can be done to improve it? I'm sure there are. I'm sure companies could be more efficient and publishers could maybe push down costs that way as well. Also, I should say Matteo please do feel free to challenge me. That's your job here. Okay. Your job is to ask me questions. And if you disagree with me, please tell me. And, and call me Stu from now on as well.
0: Okay, thanks. <laughs> so one last question about the publishing process and then we'll move. I'll take you back to your research time. So it's going to be a long a long yeah. time ago. There's a journal, I don't remember which journal, maybe, maybe you do, that they decided to stop rejecting articles and they started publishing them with the reviewers' comments. What do you think about that?
1: There's a distinction here, um, because actually, at some nature journals, we do publish review comments. We still go through the peer review process, but the papers that we publish at some nature journals, they do publish the referee reports, too, which I think can be interesting. I think the journal you're probably referring to is eLife, where I believe... A paper must have been submitted as a preprint first before they will even consider it. And then I think an editor decides whether it will be reviewed or not. And if the paper is reviewed, the journal will commit to publishing it no matter what the referee reports are. So even if the referee reports say this is terrible, this is wrong, this is just not right, they will still publish it and they will publish the referee reports. And similarly, if it, if it's great, then it's all right, they will publish the paper and publish the referee reports. I think that did receive a a little bit of criticism when it was first announced on Twitter because they're still making that editorial selection initially about what will get published and what won't. So I don't know what the numbers are, but let's say they decide 25% of papers will be reviewed and therefore published. There's still those other 75% of papers that are not going to be reviewed and will not be published, although they they still appear as preprints wherever the authors have on a preprint server again i think it's a different model and i think it's very good that publishers like elife are innovating and trying new things is this going to be the model that all publishers are using in 10 years time probably not i don't know it's foolish to try and make predictions especially about the future as um i think some famous baseball player (laughs) once said so i think it's great that different publishers are trying different things and maybe it's maybe it's good that we don't settle on one model maybe we should have more than one model it gives people more choice and we'll get to see the benefits or the disadvantages of all the different models that we have
0: mm-hmm. well thanks for all these questions about publishing and, and the, what happens behind in the black box Right, it's a, it's a good sneak <laughs> peek thank you so much so now I'm, I'm going to okay, change sure. the subject a little bit can you please tell yeah. us the story of Kelule Kelule Tecule, okay, thanks. And how do you use that as an analogy for your research with, with the boromian <coughs> rings? I, I said so many words are, there are <laughs> unknown, so please, can you please explain, clarify a little bit? I
1: I would love to, Matteo. I would love to. Um, so Kekule was a German chemist um, who was active and alive in the 19th century. And this was when chemists were really trying to figure out what the structure of molecules were. We had no analytical techniques back in the 1800s that could tell you that this is how the atoms are connected together. You could basically, you could work out what the formula of a molecule was. You could tell if it had, let's say, six carbon atoms and six hydrogen atoms in it. But the rules of chemical bonding hadn't really been worked out. And so chemists didn't know how they were stuck together to form a molecule. And so there's an apocryphal story. I'm I'm sure it's apocryphal and it's not real. And benzene was a a very common chemical in the, well, it's been around a long time, but benzene was sort of the thing that people were trying to figure out the structure of in the the 1800s. And benzene contains six carbon atoms and six hydrogen atoms. So carbon can form four bonds and hydrogen can form one bond. And so if, if you or your listeners actually sat down using that set of rules and they had six carbon atoms and six hydrogen atoms, you could probably draw many, 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 I think it's probably almost a hundred, maybe more different plausible ways in which those atoms could be connected together. So the story with Kekulé is um, he was sort of in a in a dreamlike state. He was sort of dozing. He was half asleep. And... Apparently he dreamt of a snake biting its own tail. And I think this is sort of a mythological symbol as well, the Ouroboros. And it's a snake coming around and biting its own tail. And that apparently gave him this flash of inspiration that benzene is actually six carbon atoms in a ring. And from each ring, you have a hydrogen atom bonded to it. So it's it's a hexagon, essentially. And sure enough that is the structure of benzene. (laughs) It wasn't actually empirically confirmed until I think the 1920s or 1930s when someone got an x-ray crystal structure of it so you could actually pinpoint where the atoms were and what was connected to what. Humanity in general, but chemists in particular, I think they are fascinated by rings, by circles. They're infinite. They have no start. They have no end. Pythagoras and pi and pi crops up everywhere. It's It circles all the way down. And so the idea that you can have a molecule that is essentially a circle um, or a ring attracted a lot of chemists' attention. And so back even in the early 1900s, chemists started to make bigger and bigger rings and um, like really huge rings of atoms connected together in a circle. Actually, the first day of my chemistry degree, first day undergraduate chemistry lecture I sat down in a lecture theatre at the University of Birmingham in the UK. And the person who came in to give the lecture was the head of school. And this is someone called Fraser Stoddart, Gruff, Scottish chap, came in and he was meant to tell us about basic chemistry. But he was head of school, so he didn't have to follow the rules. So he came in and he spent the entire first lecture telling us about the research that went on in his group. Now, this was 19... I'm giving my age away here. This was 1993. And I was absolutely transfixed because he started talking about rings, but not only rings, he started talking about taking rings of atoms and joining them together. So you've got these interlinked rings. And the one particular story he told us was this molecule that had been made in his group where they'd linked five rings together. Now, where else have you seen five rings linked together?
0: Olympics Are is we? the first thing comes to mind. The Olympics,
1: absolutely. So they made this molecule with five linked rings. Guess what they called it? Olympiodane, because we like to put A-N-E on the ends of our molecule names. And they made it out of molecules. So this thing would be tiny. This thing would be, I don't know, maybe a couple of nanometers long. Maybe not even that, actually, come to think about it. But by using various self-assembly methods and getting molecules to recognize each other, they built this molecule where the rings weren't bonded to each other. They weren't chemically bonded, but they were literally just mechanically trapped together. And I, this, this blew my mind. Um, I was like, you can do that with molecules? So anyway, fast forward to 1996. I walked into Fraser's office at Birmingham and said, can I do my PhD with you? And he was like, yeah, sure. That, that's fine. <laughs> you can do that. So I spent my PhD thinking about how you can connect rings together and how you can interlock. And there's one very famous construct, um, and you've you've already named it. It's called the Borromean rings. Now, it's called the Borromean rings because it's named after the Borromeo family of Renaissance Italy, so 15th century Italy. And on their crest they had three interlocked rings but it's a really interesting structure it's going to be very hard to describe in words mm-hmm. but these three rings are all interlocked but no two of them are interlocked with each other so you can't pull them apart and if you break any one of the three rings the other two just fall apart as well so it's a really unique construction so it's not like you break one of the rings and you've got the other two still stuck together they all just come apart if you break one and they're named the Borromean rings, but this, this motif goes back in history. You can see this on a, um, a gravestone, um, a Viking sort of tombstone on an island in the middle of the Baltic Sea. And it's called the Valknot, and it's made of triangles, and it's three interlocked triangles. You see this in Japanese iconography, and also you see it in Christian iconography, in like illuminated manuscripts. And often you see it, and it has the word "it has the word Trinitas" in it because it represents the Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is, is if you take away one part of it, it all falls apart. But I think the most important example is there was a brewery, and they released a beer called Ballantine's Beer, um, where they had the Boromian Rings logo, and it was something like strength, purity, and flavour, or something, and. But can you imagine trying to make two rings that are interlocked? It's actually not that difficult. You need to make one ring. You need to thread a straight molecule through it, which is actually not that difficult. And then you tie the two ends together. Mm -hmm. In chemistry, that's not actually that hard. But can you try and imagine how you get three rings together where no two rings are actually interlocked with each other? That's actually quite difficult. So I spent my sort of, I probably should have been listening in seminars, but I spent most of the seminars I went to sitting in the back, scribbling on bits of paper, thinking, how on earth do we make this sort of thing? And I came up with a few ways of doing it and I ran out of time. I finished my PhD, but I left the code book. I left the instructions in the group and I went away and I did a postdoc just up the road in Caltech because Fraser's group was at UCLA by now. And I went up to Caltech and, uh, and then actually went back to his group for a few years and it turned out that he got this amazing canadian postdoc and this canadian postdoc just had tons of gold in the chemistry laboratory everything he touched just he, he could make anything mm-hmm. and we made it we made the boramine rings out of molecules so and it, literally tiny tiny thing and we got a crystal structure and it proved that there are these three rings and they're interlocked in this very special way and you know what that molecule will never be useful for absolutely anything, nothing at all. But it's the sheer joy of creating something that no one has created before, showing you it, it, it's climbing Everest because you can climb Everest. It's making this molecule just because it's it's a challenge and it's fun. And, and look at how we can manipulate molecules just using chemistry. And we're not talking like physical tools. We're not talking like little AFM tips, pulling them around and tying them together. We're literally talking about chemical reactions and designing the molecules so they can recognize bits of each other and assemble themselves in a particular way, and boom. And actually, you you bring together 18 different components in one flask, and you make this beautiful, beautiful molecule.
0: I think with that expression of making science because of the pleasure of making science and doing it because we can, I think it's a great moment for us to go to a little break, and then we'll come back with some more science stories, if that's okay? Sounds great. So, before the break, we were listening to Everlong by the Foo Fighters. Why, why did you pick that song?
1: So, I really like the Foo Fighters. Um, and it was something in lockdown, actually, during the COVID pandemic. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was um, a British girl who was a drummer. Um, she was like nine or ten years old. Her name was Nandy Bug. her name is Nandy Buggler. And she challenged Dave Grohl to a drum off. Um, and this was all over YouTube. It had like millions and millions of hits. And she's like nine or 10, but she plays the drums like a demon. And so Dave Grohl responded to this. And then they had like this drum off challenge. If you've not seen this on YouTube, you have to look
0: it have up not. YouTube. I, I'm definitely gonna look it up, yeah.
1: Uh, it was probably towards the end of COVID and the end of the pandemic when things were opening up. They flew this girl out to LA, I think. And she played drums on Everlong at one of their concerts. And I mean, I don't know if she was like 10 or 11 at that point, but literally this. And she, no fear, just plays the drums incredibly well. And so Taylor Hawkins was just sitting on the side of the stage and Nandi was just playing drums to Everlong. And you can find this on YouTube too. It's absolutely amazing. So, That's
0: so amazing. every time I hear
1: that song, I just think about this young girl smashing the drums and it's amazing
0: And now we're listening to Read All About It, part 3 by Emily Sandé
1: He
0: has some powerful lyrics, is that why you picked it?
1: Yeah, so this is quite a personal one so this song was played at the start of what it's called the Infected Blood Inquiry in the UK. And the Infected Blood Inquiry looks at the contaminated blood scandal that resulted in, I think, almost two or 3,000 haemophiliacs being infected with HIV and then ultimately suffering from AIDS. So haemophilia, for those who don't know, is... There are different variations of it, but one of the main ones is where someone doesn't have a particular protein factor 8, or they have the protein, but it's a faulty version of the protein. And it means that your blood does not clot. Um, so if you bleed, you bleed for a very long time. But it's not just external bleeds. It means you can bleed into joints and you can bleed internally. And this is very painful and it's, it's difficult to walk or move. Um, so there's a lot of joint pain. And so this is quite personal to me because my dad was a hemophiliac. Um, and he was one of the people caught up in the contaminated blood scandal. Um, so he died when I was 15 Um, after being infected with HIV. And it's one of the biggest, not only medical scandals in the UK, this is a big scandal across the world in the US, um, everywhere, actually. Because what happened is um, the way Factor Eight was obtained is pharmaceutical companies would get it from plasma donations. Now, plasma donations are quite different to blood donations. They're, They're done in a slightly different way. And especially in the U.S., um, they would pay people to donate plasma. It's actually illegal in the U.K. and probably many other countries to pay people to donate blood or plasma. And so the, the incentives there to be paid to donate, it means the type of people who donate are not necessarily the people who you want to be donating. And pharmaceutical companies went into prisons. They went. They had lots of drug users donating plasma. And they would concentrate all of this down And if even one of the donors was infected with HIV or hepatitis or other diseases, that would make it through to the Factor Eight product that then haemophiliacs would inject to make sure their blood would clot and then not have all these other problems. Um, So the pharmaceutical companies knew what they were doing. And actually, they've been sued in the U.S. and successfully sued in the U.S. Um, And they were stopped from doing it. But the pharmaceutical companies still had huge stocks of this infected Factor Eight, And it was still shipped abroad. And it was because they didn't want to lose it. They didn't want to lose the money associated with, with that. They didn't want to throw it away. And so the government in the UK at the time was also complicit in this because they ignored lots of warnings that the Factor Eight that was being given to people was infected and not infected with a virus that's not going to kill you, that literally this would kill you. Um, so yeah, so this is, there's now a big campaign in the UK. Um, so often it's referred to on Twitter as the contaminated blood scandal. And obviously I, I've, I've got a big, not role in this, but I've, uh, I'm invested in this. Cause again, my dad, um, sadly was infected with this. And I say I was, I was 15 when he passed away. It actually, it occurred to me, um, tomorrow, this is just sheer coincidence. Tomorrow is 34 34 years of the anniversary of his death, 26th of August, 1989. Um, so it actually feels quite good talking about it. Um, and this, as I say, this song, if you actually listen to the lyrics to this song, it talks about, because we didn't talk about this for years. People who were affected by this, there was a lot of stigma because of AIDS, there was a lot of stigma. This is the terrible disease brought to and brought down upon homosexuals by God and all this sort of nonsense um and i mean no one should suffer from this whoever you are but hemophiliacs were drawn into this as well and people were ostracized and so you just did not talk about this and people have not wanted to hear this story and successive governments have not had an inquiry and it was only i think in 2017 that they finally announced there would be an inquiry um and so if you listen to the lyrics it's all about having our voices heard and being able to change a nation. Um, so yeah, quite powerful.
0: First of all, I'm, I'm really sorry this happened to your father. And Thank I really you. like an article that you wrote that, and, and we don't have to talk about it if you don't want, but you wrote an article in your blog about how this whole situation kind of pushed you into pursuing a career in science.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely more than happy to talk about this. So, so I mean, I was a kid and these were all sort of big scary words and I kind of wanted to know what had happened to my dad I wanted to know what this was all about and I mean you would have thought I might have gone into medicine but it turns out that I'm I'm scared by the sight of blood and I can't even watch it on TV when it's fake it makes me feel queasy <laughs> so um, I realize you don't have to go down the route being a doctor or a surgeon or anything but um, just even thinking about medical things I'm not good with that but it, it did sort of want me to figure out the science behind it or learn more about the science behind it. But it, it's not even just that. I was talking to someone about this the other day, actually, because I, I was given an interview um, about this situation. And it's because, so my dad was 48 when he died. And actually, I'm now 49. That's really quite weird. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of things he did not have the opportunity to do. Um, so he didn't really go to school. He never really left home. He didn't travel very far because of his medical condition. So whenever an opportunity has presented itself to me that I've wanted to do, or even if I've been unsure about doing it, I've sort of grabbed it with both hands because it's like, you know what? He didn't get to do it. I'm going to take these opportunities kind of on his behalf, if you like. Um, And so... I started my PhD and when my PhD advisor said, Hey, we're moving halfway around the world to Los Angeles. Do you want to come? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then when I've got invites to go and give talks in various different countries, I'm like, yeah, you know what? My dad didn't get to travel the world. I'm going to go travel the world. And so it's not like I'm going to solve anything or figure out how to cure any of this stuff. Um, But yeah, it really, I think did spur me on to sort of make the most of my life because his life was so short. Was to make the most of mine and sort of maximize my opportunities and just do the best i can at the things i do um so yeah it did it, it, it did spur me on to do that
0: you mentioned your father was uneducated in some sort of way but he did something that is really yep. impressive that he taught himself how to fix watches that's amazing he did.
1: it's so this, this is the thing is he wasn't classically educated in any sense but he was actually very intelligent. Um, and so, yeah, he would, he would, so it, in the UK and maybe in the States, I don't know. Um, when when we weren't living in such a disposable society, so when I was growing up in the 1980s, and when you bought a watch and you kept a watch for years, not, I mean, not like my Apple watch now, which I change every three years or whatever, and our phones, which we change every two years. Um, when you had a watch, you pretty much had a watch for like 10 years or life and so when it broke you wanted someone to fix it and you could take it to a shop on the high street and they would charge you some crazy sum of money to get it fixed or you could take it to my dad who would charge you like i don't know a tenth of the price to mm-hmm. fix it um and he would so he he, had, he to be, to be honest, it wasn't a legitimate business. It was kind of like <laughs> cash in hand, and it was he was doing it for his friends and his friends' friends. But it was kind of a little business that he ran on the side. So I mean, he didn't. I think he didn't just sit idly by and sort of let his life pass him by and just sort of feel sorry for himself. He did. He did do things, but obviously his opportunities were very limited. But I mean, the other positive benefit for me, in some ways, I mean, it's all terrible, and I'd rather it hadn't have happened, but because he didn't go out and work he was at home with me a lot and so i think i got an awful lot of attention from him and from my mum when i was little that if they'd just been regular parents and off out working all the time i wouldn't have quite got the same level of interaction or attention Um, so again maybe there's a little bit of a silver lining there
0: what's the state of the trial now
1: so it's not actually a trial um, not yet anyway so this is a public inquiry and it's actually reaching the conclusion so lots of people have given evidence some in person some as written statements so I didn't I didn't give evidence in person but I gave a written statement um, the final report is expected um, this fall actually so maybe September maybe October time and that will come with it a lot of recommendations. Um, The government in the UK has accepted that there's a moral case for compensation. So there will probably be some form of compensation. But to be honest, what I just really want to know is exactly what happened, who did things that they shouldn't have done, who, who ignored the warnings and why did they ignore the warnings? And I'd kind of just like someone to stand up in Parliament and be genuinely sorry for it. The problem is at the moment is we have uh, it's the Conservative Party that's in power and they are mostly liars and snakes um, and they will do anything to try and wriggle their way out of this. And probably what they will try and do is defer making any decision until the next election, which will be sometime next year. And it looks like they're about to get crushed in the next election anyway and a different party will come into power. And they'll just leave this as a problem for the next party. Because then the the Conservative Party are just the lowest of the low and they care about nothing but themselves and making money for themselves. Um and anyway they will try and wriggle out of this, they will. I just have zero respect for the Conservative Party, and the current Prime Minister is just a hollow, soulless little charlatan who yeah. Probably, probably I shouldn't say anymore.
0: (laughs) Is there any platform you would like to share in case somebody wants to either join the cause or has been affected by this problem as well?
1: Um, There's there's a Facebook group in the UK called the Fatherless Generation because a lot of kids, a lot of kids, the kids of the hemophiliacs who went through this have sort of now banded together. So there's a Facebook group the contaminated blood hashtag on twitter generally includes a lot of content related to it i'm not part of any sort of formal campaign groups um i wish i had the time and the energy for that but i don't but i mean i support them 100 percent in everything they do um and i just it's been quite cathartic these last sort of 10 years i mean I didn't really tell many people about this until I wrote that blog post in maybe 2013. So there were colleagues I worked with. They had no idea. There were friends who had no idea about this because it it's not a conversation you have down in the pub. It's like, you know, have a pint. And oh, by the way, my dad died of AIDS. Didn't you know that? It's not something that really comes up in conversation. So, but writing that blog post was a was a massive release. And actually, to be honest, the more I talk about it, the better I get at talking about it rather than just breaking down influence of tears. Um, so I really appreciate the opportunity to get to talk to you about it, Mateo.
0: One, just one final question about this. What mm. is there any anything particular that made you open up? Or it was just an accumulation of you just needed to do it and... Can you pinpoint it to something specific or not?
1: No, I don't think I can, actually. Um, I think I'd been mulling it over for a while, and I'd had a blog for a few years at that point. Um, And I think you're right. It was just kind of an accumulation. And, God, it felt so good when I actually wrote it and hit publish. Um, And, I mean, not too many people said things to me. I got some very nice comments on the blog, and I got some nice comments on Twitter, and occasionally I'd tweet about various anniversaries and people are always very lovely um it but i think and now especially with the inquiry it's just about trying to get it more into the public consciousness as well trying to get more people to understand i mean this this genuinely is one of the biggest medical scandals in the uk if not the biggest i mean okay the way covid was handled by the government was an utter mess for many months um And that was terrible. But I mean, this is literally a medical treatment that people in the government knew would kill people. And not only that, is after the fact, a lot of the evidence was destroyed by people in government. There are a lot of documents that just simply no longer exist. There are records of them being destroyed. So why do they do that because they knew what they did was utterly utterly reprehensible and wrong so i think the more people that hear the story and again read all about it and and one of the lyrics in fact it's on the album our version of events and one of the lyrics in read all about it is hear about our version of events and that's what this inquiry is about It's about getting the stories out there um if one thing it if I can can plug it, there's a journalist in the UK, and I've only just started listening to this. I've listened to the first few episodes. There's a podcast called Bed of Lies. There's two seasons, season one and season two. Season one is about a completely different scandal, something else. But season two of Bed of Lies, and it's available on Spotify, is all about this medical scandal in the UK but it traces its origins back to the US and it talks about the pharma companies so if any of your listeners are remotely interested in finding out what this is all about um that's the podcast to go and listen to
0: perfect yeah 100% i i will check it out as well because it's a really interesting story and and as you said it seems like a lot of people were looking the other way and it's really it's really it's really wrong really wrong yeah <laughs> Yeah, so, definitely. Dr. Cantrell, I mean, Stu, do you mind if we do uh, our next break now and then we come back with, I want you to share some of the stories that you're exposed to. So as, as an editor, you have an overview of all the science that is going, and you must be exposed yeah. to amazing scientific stories, and I would like you to, to share some of those, if that's okay. I'd love to. one of my pump up songs we're listening now to blue monday by new order which is it's a it's a great song i, I love it why why did you begin
1: so i'm again i really do like new order but there is actually a there's a backstory to this one as well um, and it's actually related to nature chemistry i realized at one point that we were about to publish our 100th issue So normally you celebrate like fifth anniversaries and 10th anniversaries and we publish one issue a month. So it's 12 issues a year. But it got to a point where I realised we're about to publish the 100th issue. And the thing about being an editor of a nature journal is it's nice to have a little bit of fun occasionally. So I had one of my my colleagues in on it. But what I decided to do for for the editorial for the 100th issue, I decided I was going to embed the song titles from an album into the editorial, just liberally space them, like part of sentences in the editorial. <laughs> and I had some discussions with with my colleague about it, and we were going backwards and forwards on which album should we try and use. And the first album we thought of was Smells Like Teen Spirit um, by Nirvana, of course. Because, I mean, there's a song title in there called Lithium. That one's easy. But if you try and get... Um, Sorry, the album's called Nevermind. The album's called Nevermind. So, yeah, so if you try and get Smells Like Teen Spirit into an editorial in Nature Chemistry, that's going to be hard. And there's a song on there called Territorial Pissings, which is going to be even (laughs) harder. Um, But things like Come As You Are or um, Lithium, easy. But we figured that was a stretch too far. Anyway, I've I've always quite liked New Order. I I actually saw them live... um, in coachella i went to the coachella festival in must have been late 90s early 2000s i saw them live there really like them so the album i decided to choose is republic by new order and i think it's got um the 10 tracks on it or 12 10 or 12 anyway i did manage to get the entire track listing into the editorial (laughs) i can send you a link afterwards um not only got the entire track listing in i got the name of the band i got new order in there i got the title of the album republic in there (laughs) i got the name of the um recording recording studios i forget what that was though and also the record label Um, i got that in there we got all of them in the editorial and the editorials are right they get circulated around the team before we publish them and they get seen by a copy editor so I had to have the copy editor in on the joke because there's a few slightly awkward turns of phrase for some of the song titles. Um, like one of the song titles is Spooky, but I managed to get a Spooky in there. Um, I forget exactly what all the song titles are now, but some of them were quite tricky to get in there. And, my, and my, the deal I made with the, my colleague was if people on the team all pointed to the same awkward sentence and said, what's going on? then we'd call it off. I wouldn't do it. And some of them pointed out the odd, awkward sentence here or there, but not the same one. And they all did slightly different ones. And not. And some of them didn't even notice at all. So we went ahead with it. So there is an editorial in Nature Chemistry. Um, it's called A Chemical Century. Is the name of the uh, editorial because a 100, edit- 100 issues of the journal. And it literally has the entire track listing of a New Order album hidden in the the written words of the editorial so that's why i chose blue monday and also blue monday is the ring turn on my phone
0: did you did somebody ever like a new order fan or something notice it
1: um i well i blogged about it of course i did um i blogged about it so i told people what i'd done and then i did get a few emails from people and there's one there's a one particular professor um He's a professor of supramolecular chemistry. His name is Phil Gale. He's now based in Australia, and he's a dean of some university or other, or vice chancellor. And he's a big New Order fan, and he quite enjoyed the editorial. I think I sent him a paper copy of the journal. Um, but that's, that's one of my proudest moments to date as an editor, because it's, there's a serious side to it as well, and you have to make sure that the papers you're publishing have been rigorously peer-reviewed and everything's okay. But you know what? Where's the fun if you can't just occasionally do something quirky with an editorial?: I like love that? it. I love it. 100 percent. yeah, it's awesome.
0: <laughs> and before the break, just to, to give the credit, we were listening to "Sit Down" by James. So now, Stu, I would, like, I would love if you could share some of the great research things that you, you've been exposed to, and, and I have some examples if it helps you if, if yeah. it helps guide you. For example, I, li- I love the bite-size molecules models.
1: Yeah, that was... Um, it's such an original idea. A, absolutely. So that was a research paper published, I believe, in the journal Science. Um, so part of what we do at Nature Journals is we look at great papers published elsewhere, because we're not naive. We, we know that great papers get published elsewhere. And this one was published in um, Science, and it was... The author, I believe, his son is um, visually impaired. And so a lot of his life has been built around helping his son who's visually impaired. And what this study was about was making sort of um, shapes of proteins using the same stuff that gummy bears are made out of. And what they would do is they would have, I think they had partially sighted um, volunteers and they had sighted volunteers who were blindfolded and they they you literally you put this in your mouth it's food grade gummy bear material and you would be able to recognize which protein was which by the feel on your tongue and by just rubbing your tongue over it and it's obviously a way of helping um students who are visually impaired be able to understand the structure and, and get a visualization in their mind of, of what these proteins look like. Um, and it, I was just fascinated by it. And it's, it's not the sort of thing we would necessarily normally cover in a research highlight in nature chemistry, but I saw this and I'm like, this is utterly fantastic. I want to write about this. And again, that's that's the power you have as an editor is you see a great piece of science somewhere. You can go, right, I want to write about this for my audience.
0: So I did. And it was amazing also that the mouth was way more sensible than the hands. They, they got better results at differentiating the proteins with their mouth than with their hands.
1: I, I believe you. I mean, it's a couple of years since I wrote this, but you've clearly read it more recently <laughs> than I have. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, everything about the study was just utterly amazing because as sighted individuals, we wouldn't think about this and you wouldn't think about trying to figure out the the shape or the dimensions of something by sticking it in your mouth. Exactly, exactly, um, yeah. But it was, yeah, it was... and, and But the, the greatest thing about it was making science more accessible to a broader range of people, which is what we should all be trying to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you remember the story of Element 61? And all the <laughs> debates about its name, too.
1: Yeah, so... Um, so this is Prometheum. Ultimately, when they decided on the name, they called it Prometheus. Uh, they called it after Prometheus, who was the a titan in Greek mythology who stole fire from the gods. And Prometheum, the element, um, was actually, I think it was, I guess it was discovered. It was discovered during the Second World War. In sort of the fission products of uranium as the Manhattan project was going on. So Promethium does not occur in nature. And um, so it's a very unstable element. It's very radioactive and it was found in the fission products of uranium, so when uranium breaks down. And so because this is around the time of the Second World War and then the Second World War, of the, well, the end of the Second World War came about because of the two nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan and so and then there was the the terrible what what is the nuclear age going to bring us? Is it going to sort of destroy us all? And because Prometheus had stolen fire from the gods, people equated Prometheum and the Nuclear Age with stealing fire from the gods. And so I think it was one of the discoverers' wives who suggested the name Prometheum, if I remember correctly, from the article I wrote. Um and Prometheus is an interesting character in the. Um, So as punishment for stealing fire from the gods, I believe he was chained to a rock, and then an eagle was sent to eat out his liver while he was still alive. And this repeated itself day after day after day, and that was his punishment from the gods for stealing fire from them. Um, But the history of Prometheum, in element 61 is lots of groups previously had claimed to have discovered it, but actually, erroneously, they hadn't. They'd ended up discovering... Well, it, they hadn't ended up discovering anything. they just found an element that already existed. Um, so it took a long time for people to actually figure out what Promethean was. And it was, it was one of the slots on the periodic table that wasn't filled for a very long period of time. And it's, there was a feature in Nature Chemistry called In Your Element. And so for the first 120 issues of the journal the back page of every issue included a 700 article on an element. Um, Now the chemists who might be listening, they'll be like, Oh, but there are only 118 elements. And that's right. There are only 118 elements on the periodic table, but we gave a special pass to the two isotopes of hydrogen. So we also had an article on deuterium and we had an article on tritium. So it ended up being 120, but So I wrote the article on Promethean fairly late. It was probably like number 110 or something um, because I'd always wanted to write one. But by the time I decided I wanted to write one, there weren't many left to choose from. Um, So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to choose Promethean because I know nothing about it and this will be an opportunity to learn all about it. And I also love the history of chemistry and the history of science. So anything where I can dig back into sort of old papers and try and figure out when it was discovered, how it was discovered, and any of these interesting sort of naming stories, I will go for that. I'll always try and learn more about where the science today came from in the past.
0: And Stu, can you tell us the story about ferrocene? How did it open up an entirely wrong field of science?
1: I'm going kind of, to slightly correct you there. The original paper was entirely wrong, But it opened up an entirely new field of science that was entirely right. Um, So, ferrocene is a really interesting compound. It's called a sandwich compound. Now, we talked about benzene before. Benzene is this flat ring of six carbon atoms with six hydrogen atoms around it. It's almost like we've set this up, but we actually haven't set this up. (laughs) Um, Ferrocene, so a molecule of ferrocene, is an iron atom. So, an iron atom... And on top of it, you've got a flat five-membered carbon ring, five carbons in a circle, and on each carbon is a hydrogen. But then on the other face, on the bottom, you've got another ring of five carbons and one hydrogen attached to each carbon. So you've literally got a sandwich. You've got an iron atom in a sandwich between two five-membered carbon rings. And this is why these are called sandwich compounds, um, and these are quite common now in what we call organometallic chemistry, because you've got a metal in the middle, you've got organic ligands on the top and the bottom. Um, the first paper that reported the synthesis, the preparation of ferrocene, was published in 1951 in Nature, and so they said, "Ah, we've we've got this compound." Um, It's ferrocene. It's got the formula D10, H10, Fe. They knew what the constituents were, but there was no X-ray crystal structure. They didn't know where the atoms were. They didn't know what the structure was. There were very basic analytical techniques in the 1950s, so it could sort of tell you the symmetry of the molecule, but it couldn't tell you the connectivity. It couldn't tell you which atoms were connected to which ones. so in this nature paper they proposed a structure and what they drew was they drew a five-membered ring sort of flat and then one of the points of the five-membered ring was connected to the iron and then the other five-membered ring it's a point on that one was also connected to the iron so it had like this linear structure with a five-membered ring and iron in the middle and another five-membered ring but not as a flat sandwich it would be like Instead of putting your two bits of bread on the top and the bottom of the filling, it would be like having the filling and then putting like the two bits of bread one side, one one side and one the other, other and just the corners touching it. So a lot of people saw this paper in Nature and they went, Oh, that's really interesting. But that structure's not right. That structure can't be right. Because intrinsically, they were like, It would be really unusual for the atoms to be bonded together in that way. And um, so it basically prompted a lot of other chemists to go, oh, I wonder what the real structure actually is. And it took a few years for a crystal structure. I can't remember when the crystal structure came about, but even before we got a crystal structure of it, other chemists came along and said, ah, no, this is what the structure is. There's much more... There's much more evidence for it being this structure, the actual proper sandwich structure, rather than the one that was proposed in the paper. And this did launch an entire field of sandwich chemistry, if you will, sandwich compounds. Because um, you, you not only just have them with iron in the middle, you can have them with different elements in the middle, and you can also have different sized rings top and bottom, and you can actually have multi-decker stacks as well. And... I can't remember the exact year, but this led to a Nobel Prize in the 1970s for someone who worked on these sandwich compounds. But this is a really interesting thing, because back in the day, the level of tools we had in chemistry to work out what a molecule was weren't, weren't that great. So they really didn't have a lot of evidence, yet Nature published this paper. So I published a paper with a sort of historian of science about whether we should be more risky in what we publish should we publish more speculative ideas in order to kickstart people thinking about is this really how this happens so it's not as though we're going to launch nature speculative ideas anytime soon but wouldn't it be interesting if we did actually have people have a forum for people to talk about their sort of maybe slightly crazy ideas and things that are a bit more out of the ordinary Um, but yeah pharocene itself is just an Utterly, utterly fascinating combat
0: as well. It's bright orange. Stu, I'm going to move on from science now, and I'm going to go into more personal questions, if, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So I actually asked Chat GPT to come up with an with a out-of-the-box question for you. So I had, okay. had to feed him your profile and, and give him a little bit of background information, but in the end, he came up with this question, and, and it's this one. If you could choose any fictional scientist from literature movies or tv to submit a research article to nature journals who would it be and what groundbreaking discovery do you think they would present
1: oh goodness me fictional scientist oh this is a tough one mateo um i reckon it should be like beaker from the muppets (laughs) and i think i think beaker would invent some kind of like amazing gel like substance that just expands and grows and covers everything that you spill it on and just, and maybe it wouldn't even have any useful properties, but it would just be this amazing green self-replicating goo that I don't know. Maybe it would have some wonderful wound healing properties or something, but Beaker would discover it entirely by accident and wouldn't have intended to do it, of course, (laughs) because that's all he did was have accidents. Um, So yeah, something like that. Because you know what? Most fictional scientists you see in like movies these days, they're not that good.
0: Stu, I don't want to um, do any insinuations about your your habits, but in your Twitter in your Twitter account, the first word that appears is wine, and you mentioned yeah. that you're drinking red wine, and you even yeah, you even have given and posted recipes
1: to produce slow gin, for example.
0: Is this a big hobby in your life? It's
1: not as big as it used to be in, in terms of making the slow gin, and I. I'm actually I'm more of a collector than a drinker. I mean, I'm I literally am sitting here having a glass of red wine now. But I went through a phase of making a lot of sort of home. Well, I say making a lot of homemade alcohol. We're not actually doing any distillation because that would be entirely illegal. But doing a lot of infusions. So we like going and walking in the countryside. And I was I was walking with my wife one day with our daughter, and we walked past this tree or this bush that had lots of purple berries on it. And I was like, oh, what are those? And my wife said, oh, I think they're sloes. And sloes are the small purple fruit of the blackthorn bush. I don't think they're that common in North America, actually, but they're all over the UK. Um, and lots of farmers used to plant blackthorn bushes to demarcate their fields because they're very spiky and they're very dense. And so they keep people out of fields and they keep animals in. Um, so these are everywhere, but... You can't eat slows. They're incredibly, incredibly astringent. Um, you, you, you just couldn't... Well, you, you could eat them, but you wouldn't want to. And so years ago, probably hundreds of years ago, maybe even longer, um, what people used to do is they would collect slow berries and soak them in gin some other form of alcohol and add a bit of sugar and make slow gin. So slow gin is actually quite sweet, um, and you're not actually making the alcohol. You're, you're just using the alcohol to steep the berries in. So... We went through a phase many years of of making slow gin, but we'd branch out and we'd make things like slow whiskey and slow brandy. But then we'd also go foraging for other fruits. So um, damsons are sort of little plums, green gauges, which are little green plums, Um, blackberries. So we'd make blackberry whiskey. Um, We'd make apple gin. And it's just infusing lots of different fruits into the gin. And what we do is we tend to do it, and then we'd bottle it into small bottles and give them away as gifts at Christmas. But I did kind of get a reputation on Twitter for apparently someone who likes gin a lot. So even to this day, I had I, had, I was meeting with someone the other day, and someone who is a friend of mine, but they just bought me a bottle of gin um, because they know I like gin. So I, I I actually have lots of unopened bottles of gin um, in my garage. Actually, that's that's my that's my cellar. Um, I must have. Well, I know how many I've got. I've got 80 or 90 bottles of gin, most of which are unopened. Um, But I've also taken to collecting wine and um, we tend to go to France most summers. And so there's a particular region of France which I really like the wine from. So um, we tend to stock up on wine when we're in France and bring it home. Are you excited for the Rugby World Cup? Um, not overly, to be honest. I I used to play rugby at school. I'll probably end up watching it. I mean, I'm not particularly excited because I don't think England are going to do very well. To be honest, I don't watch a lot of rugby. To be honest, I don't really watch a lot of football either, but I'm, I'm more of a football fan. The problem with being... There are many problems with being English. But the problem with being English and being a football supporter is the hope. Yeah, It's the hope <laughs> that kills you. Because... I mean, and no disrespect to Scotland or Wales, but you know what? If Scotland or Wales make it and qualify for a World Cup final, they're not under any illusions they're going to win. They're going to go there. They're going to have a great time. They're going to go out glorious defeat to some country like Brazil or something. And they're going to have a lovely time. The problem with being England is you always think you can win. Mm -hmm. You always have this hope. And it's like, even if we come up against Brazil, even if we come up against Germany, ah, oh, there's a chance we can beat them because on our day we could beat them. And every time you try not to go in with the sense of hope, you try and go and think, we're not going to get very far, we're not going to do very well. But then we start doing okay and we start playing well and things start looking good. And then, okay, last World Cup wasn't great, but the World Cup before that, we made it all the way to yep. the semi-final. Yeah, 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 And then we lo- we lose against Croatia. And again, no disrespect to Croatia. They have had an amazing team. But, I mean, we could have beaten Croatia. That wouldn't have been entirely unreasonable. Um, so, yeah, it's the hope that kills you in the tail.
0: <laughs> That's your advice for the next generation?
1: <laughs> yeah, just don't hope. Don't have hope. <laughs> <laughs> when it when it comes to football, yeah. Okay,
0: I have one final question. Yeah. Beatles or Rolling Stones? Beatles. Easy.
1: Easy. I'm not even sure why I think when I was little and growing up, I think my parents might have listened to the Beatles more than the Rolling Stones. Stu, did you have a good time? I had an amazing time Matea. i'm I'm very glad I, mean, I apologize for taking so long to write back to your first email, but this has been brilliant. I've had a really, really fun time chatting to you this evening.
0: I actually I have to thank you because if you want to tell the people how this happened is I use your blog to make the poetry and science episode. And I thought it was right to thank you for using your blog. And, and the article is, is brilliant. And so I sent you a thank you email. And at the end, before sending it, I slid in the question, would you like to be a guest in Science Stories? And you were so kind to say yes. And it's, it's a pleasure for me to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Science Stories. We'll be back soon. What?
1: What?